Welcome to episode number five of the Voices of Boy podcast. Today I'm speaking with Gordon Ryan, who has had a very different life than most of us. Back when he was a baby, Gordon was diagnosed with a genetic condition called cystic fibrosis. It wasn't until he was in his early 20s that cystic fibrosis started to affect his health. As a result, in 2013, he had no option but to have a double lung transplant. In this episode, we talk about what his life was like on a daily basis in the lead up to the transplant and then we also touch base on what his life was like post-transplant. It's a very insightful look through the eyes of someone who has dealt with cystic fibrosis for a number of years and also who has gone through a major transplant in the process. I hope you enjoy listening to the episode. It did go on a little longer than we had planned, but due to the nature of the topic, we decided we'd give it the time that it deserved. Gordon, welcome to the podcast. How are you keeping? Very well, thank you, Carlo. Listen, Th- thank you for having me on. Absolutely, it's a pleasure. Look, you have a very different life story to most of us, uh, and we're going to get into that in a few minutes. But before that, why don't you tell us a bit about where you were born and where you grew up? Yeah, so I was born in uh, Coot Hall, uh, Carlo, in Ardcarn specifically, and um, grew up in, in, in that area, and I went to school in primary school in Coote Hall and um, my parents there my dad was a teacher and they had a guest house as well so we were busy with that during the summer and um, then I came into Boyle for secondary school that's where I remember from yeah and I met you there yeah yeah um, and growing up in Boyle you're of same age as myself mm. so growing up in Boyle Memory-wise, for me, I'd have a very strong memories of the hot air balloons and the gala festivals. Uh, what would your would you have any memories relating to those from your time? Absolutely, yeah. uh, f- definitely for me, the the hot air ballooning championships yeah. stand out uh, in the early early nineties. Now, it was, I think it was, yeah, yeah, yeah wasn't right. it? Uh, it was spectacular, really, and it brought such color and such excitement to the atmosphere, area yeah, and um we kept some of the the ballooning teams in, in your guest in house. our guest house right. yeah and um i remember one year we had the the club orange balloon team oh, staying right. with us and uh they i got to go up as well i got to go up twice in a hot air balloon and it's it's kind of a once in a life experience when you when you look back on that now it kind of seems crazy to be that high in the sky with no like harness or anything yeah. really protecting you're you just there. and you're just looking out over this and the, basket, silen- the silence which, as well which you, is just up to under your chest and the silence and, and just to to see the world from up there it's 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 kind of something you, you can't describe until you experience it so I have great memories of of that whole time and the excitement every year you know when when that came around and I remember going into school and you'd see the balloons up in the morning and it was, they're great memories. And uh, it was typical of a September morning because yeah. it was in September they always uh, came around this time of year, actually. It was, yeah. Uh, and they used to, on a crisp s- September morning, mm. I remember walking down to the boys' school and you'd hear in the distance the. Yeah. 
great. Just childhood it's, memory, like it's a noise away. that stays with you, isn't it? The firing up the balloons, and it does indeed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, any other kind of standout memory that before we kind of get into the yeah, I remember Boyle was kind of our town. We we were between Boyle and Carrick, but we leaned more towards Boyle, and um, we, we you know we did all our shopping, came into Boyle regularly, and I have great memories of going into. Obviously, I went into many of the shops, but in particular, Christy Wynn's shop stands ah, out yes. for me. And that really was, it was something you looked forward to. And uh, I, I really hit it off with Christy because we had a shared interest in snooker. And Christy used to used to get tickets for goffs at the time. The Irish snooker championship was held there and we, we had that in common. And then, of course, his sweet selection was... <laughs> And magazine collection. The Nothing could compare to that. Yeah. And it was just a, a great little spot. And Christy, of course, an absolute gentleman. And, you know, his ability to relate to anybody and to relate to, to young people at that time was extraordinary and stands out for me as, as a great memory. Yes. And also looking back on that time, the number of news agents around the town, you know, you could go into McDonald's, the Bazaar was another one. And, and they were places where people talked and had conversations from my recollection and, and you you wouldn't just go in and go out you'd go in and you could be in there for half an hour <laughs> having a conversation you know with Christy or, or Frank Feehan or, or Rosemary Moran at the time and yeah they were all great memories I just remember Boyle being a very busy place you know we had the cinema then and as a as a young boy I enjoyed going there that was that was a real yes. occasion bef- before it burnt and then the the fact we had all the hotels and I don't think we realised then growing up in Boyle <laughs> how I good we had it. Yeah. You know, and we, we just didn't. And when you look back the last, I suppose, 20 years and the absence of of those places, um, you know, it, it has been a shame to see that happen. But th- there were great memories back in those days. And the Royal Hotel was another place we frequented and. I had my confirmation meal there and that was a great memory. Going There's not there. too many families in Boyle, I think, back in those days that wouldn't have had some family event at some stage in the Royal. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And then another thing, Carlo, too, which you'd remember as well, were the nightclubs. Ah, uh, yes. You know, like Par- right beside Parker's me. back in the day and Cleo's nightclub Cleo's, as well. Yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, to be able to go in there for, for people at that time was, was really said, fantastic in a small town. So, as you said, so hopefully Boyle, we'll see we'll see them back again and some guys. Yeah, as you said, Boyle back in those days was a very vibrant, it lively was. place. Yeah. And obviously with the progression of time then it's kind of dwindled to what it is today. But you know, the result Boyle is a lovely town. It's it's great and it has huge potential. It has it massive really potential and I and I I feel there will be a resurgence in Boyle that it has it has diminished over the years for different reasons. You know, we saw Carrick taken over with a lot of businesses moving there and, and, and the bigger uh, stores and so on. But And then the bypass too was was a big difficulty for here. But I think now with a lot of people moving down the country, and you can see that around Boyle in the last year or two, there are a lot of new faces and there are a lot of things happening, like the tennis club in Boyle, for instance, has taken off and the golf is as busy as ever and, and loads of other uh, sports and interests for people. Yeah. So it will come round again. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. That's that's a that's a great couple of memories just to kick things off. I suppose, obviously, the main bulk of our chat today, Gordon, is going to be around your story and 
what has happened over the past couple of years for you. So mm-hmm. to give people a quick kind of snapshot, snapshot, you were diagnosed as a baby with cystic fibrosis. For anyone that doesn't know what cystic fibrosis is, it's a genetic disease that you inherit a faulty gene from each parent. Now, you, you can correct me if I'm wrong at, the, mm-hmm. at any stage in this, um, Gordon, but... And what happens is you lack a protein that regulates the salt and water in the cells of the lungs. And as a result, that creates this sticky, this, the excess salt um, causes a sticky mucus to form in the lungs, which can then cause infection. And as a result, eventually, when your lung function gets so low, you eventually need a lung transplant. Yes, you've summarised it there perfectly, Carlo. It also, as well as the respiratory system, it also affects the digestive system and it can affect other systems in the body too. But the main issue are the lungs, like you say, so so you get this sticky mucus. Mm. And what that does is it, instead of lubricating the cells, it actually blocks them and causes causes infections then and you get repeated lung infections. So over time, people's lungs get scarred with the illness and their lung fun- function declines gradually. Now, it's quite progressive um, and everyone's pattern of illness is different with the condition. Uh, but but yeah, that's, that's more yeah. or less it. And like you say, to be born with cystic fibrosis, you have to inherit the gene from each parent. So... Um, in Ireland, one in 23 people will carry the CF gene. Now, a person carrying the CF gene will not realise that they're carrying it. But if um, two people come together and have a child and they both carry the gene, then there's a one in four chance that the child will be born with cystic fibrosis. And uh, that's okay. where I found so myself. One, one in four if they... If yes, for right. each child. So each time they have a child that one in four chance persists. Now, I have one sister and she doesn't uh, okay. have it, no. Uh, but she did get tested when, when she was having children herself in the last couple of years and she's a carrier. She's a carrier. Yeah, but her partner isn't a carrier, so so, so they had no worries. Okay, yeah, right. And I've seen it in families over the years, Carlo, where, you know, more than one child would have CF and, and that's quite tragic where... You know, you can have two, three, four children within a family with cystic fibrosis and, and, and very sick with it and, you know, That's a, potentially dying then as yeah. well. Yeah. So bring us back to maybe when you first started feeling the effects of cystic fibrosis. I presume you led a, norm, a normal kind of adolescent life up until your 20s and then it kind of stuck its ugly head out. Is that correct? Yeah, that yeah. that's, sums it up quite well. Um, I was lucky in that sense. I had a very normal upbringing, which continued right through my, my teens. Um, I, I suppose I knew I had something, but I didn't know what it was. Like my parents used to say to me, oh, you have to look after yourself. You're, you know, you're, you have a chest condition and, you know, you need to be careful. But they didn't wrap me up in cotton wool right. and and that's not the case in a, with a lot of families where where CF exists and I think looking back on it that stood to me you know I was able to go to school I was able to run around and play football in school now I wasn't as good as you on the football pitch <laughs> I remember but uh, 
I, I kind of didn't realise myself I was li- limited with, with this condition. I was running as fast as I could, but it was never going to, to match others. Um, so, but that normal upbringing definitely stood to me and I was lucky I didn't experience hospitalisation with the condition until I got into my early 20s, like you said. Yeah, and, and then how did the, those how did those symptoms manifest themselves? Did they start, was it out of breath all of a sudden or was it a slow kind of progression? Did you feel that this chest infection that your parents were telling you about when you were young, this is starting to come about now a little bit more aggressively? Yeah, I was starting to feel breathless and also coughing a lot more. And with cystic fibrosis, you have a lot of mucus there. And when that gets infected, then it, it can be quite nasty. So you're having to cough that up. And I wasn't at the time looking after myself, as as the medical team always referred to, because I'd never been sick. So I didn't think I needed to do anything. Uh, in terms of clearing out that mucus. So people with cystic fibrosis regularly need to do their own type of physiotherapy uh, where they use breathing exercise to move the mucus up out of the lungs and, and, and cough it out. Now, when I was a child, the treatment back then was that the parents would clap children on the back to actually shift the mucus, but that changed over the years as they got more <laughs> more advanced. advanced. Uh, but... Uh, at, like initially at the time when I when I started to get quite sick uh, there when I was about 21 or 2 I wasn't doing anything to help myself because I just didn't realise you know that I need really needed to and I got quite bad lung infection and found myself in St Vincent's University Hospital in Dublin which is where they have the adult centre the national centre for for adults with cystic fibrosis and that was a whole new world to me because I didn't want to know. And and there I was in hospital sick. I was put on intravenous antibiotics and I had this whole team swamping me with information. I had physiotherapists coming into me every day and wanting to teach me these new breathing exercises, which were quite arduous. You know, you had, you had to um, really put a lot of effort in doing them to, to help cough, cough out the mucus. And I just didn't want to know at the time. And... Uh, uh, it was it, it was difficult because I'd been used to being well for so long that that I just thought, okay, I'll get whatever treatment I need to get here now, get the antibiotics, do all that, and then I'll get out and I'll get on with normal life. And that's the experience for most patients in hospital who who found themselves in in hospital sick. They they get treated, they could look, they get looked after. And they go home and life moves on. But I remember a really good nurse saying to me, she said, well, you have to remember, Gordon, you can't just leave the door here and forget about it. You you know, you, the chances are you're going to be back here again. And I was like, what's she talking about? But her words, you know, were true. Were true and, and that was the experience then uh, over the next few years. So that was, so you first went into hospital in 2002? Yeah, January 2002. And then yeah. over the preceding, uh, over the following four or five years, I presume you were in and out of hospital, multiple of infections. Yeah, things progressed then. Now, I wasn't in a huge amount initially, like 2002 to 2005 or six, maybe three to four times a year. I was, still I was managing to work at the time in Dublin and, um, but things kind of reached ahead then around 2000 and 
eight. Uh, it was a gradual process. So the early years, I, I found myself in and out and not really accepting it. Do you know, I'd, I'd go into hospital. I was like, I don't, I really don't want to be here. I don't want to know about this. Just want to get out and lead a normal life. And that's all people with cystic fibrosis ever want is to be able to leave an, live a normal life. But but it doesn't work like that. I remember somebody saying to me, well, there's three of you now in this situation. There's there's you, <laughs> there's your life in terms of your work, your job, friends, all of that. And then there's your cystic fibrosis. So I, I had to really allow for that and take on board everything I was being told and learn how to look after myself. I had been lucky, I suppose, Carlo, you know, that, that I had escaped being sick with it up to then. And, and it's a very individual illness. I mean, some people with with cystic fibrosis won't won't get sick until they're well into their 20s or 30s. But, but I met so many people who were sick since they were children. And, mm. and that's a common pattern for a lot of people. And, and, and they didn't know any different. But, you know, I had this normal life up to then and that was now gone. And that, that took that took a lot of acceptance, you know, over those few years to, to realise that and, and to actually do something about, you know, help, helping myself. Yeah, I'd say so. And as you said, it was, you probably felt it was a rotten hand to be dealt, this, yeah. you know, consistent hospital visits. And at that stage, even maybe up towards 2008, had you fully realised that this is like, when did you kind of get to the stage where you realised that this was something that potentially is going to be fatal at some stage unless you get a transplant, for example? Is there mm. any time that you kind of felt the penny dropped? Was it when that nurse said that you have to kind of look after yourself and that it doesn't, that you'll never get rid of There's no cure, obviously, for cystic fibrosis. Yeah, no, there's no cure for it. No, it was a few, it would have been a few years after she said that. She said that in the early, during my early admissions. Right. I, I think it was over, you know, multiple visits into hospital that I gradually realised what I was dealing with. And um, it was seeing other people, really, other mm. people in hospital. Now, I know in hospital you see the worst of the worst, but there were other people with with CF who were who were dying in hospital and I was hearing more about transplant. So it was kind of strange because you wanted to know more, but, but you didn't really want to know. And it kind of seeped in over, you know, f- four to five years. And in the meantime, I was getting worse without fully realising it. And when you ask about transplant, that's not something you ever think about mm. um, because you don't want to have a transplant. But I, I was hearing about other people having transplants and and and, and I, I did wonder what had happened to me, but I, I kind of ha- had myself convinced that because I had been so well up to the age of 21 or two, that that meant I had a head start. <laughs> and I was, it was like a fool's paradise, I thought. Yeah. Well, I won't need a transplant until I'm <laughs> well into my 40s. But it doesn't work like that. I mean, people can gradually get worse over a long period of time. And I saw people who went downhill in, no, in the space of a year or two and needed a transplant. So it, it was a gradual process and... Um, I knew I was getting sicker, so when it was eventually suggested to me, I wasn't that shocked, but 
You still were. I, yeah, yeah. I, I still, I didn't the realization want. that yeah. there's no way kind of other than a transplant. Yeah, well, that was it. They, they, they don't recommend to you that you need a double lung transplant with CF until you're at the stage where they think you will live longer with a transplant than you will if you keep going battling your your CF without it. Mm. So so that that certainly um it did come as a shock, yeah. No matter mm. how much you know you knew or thought it might happen down the road. I didn't think it would come so soon. That 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 yeah. was a big shock. What was your day to day life like in the lead up to the time we, we can talk about the actual how the transplant came about, but were you taking a lot of medication? Were you on nebulizers, mm. ventilators, any of that? Like, I presume you were on all of those things on a daily basis. I was, yeah. Well, well, people with CF are on a heavy regime. So, okay. you know, they have to take antibiotics. They have to take um, digestive enzymes because I said the, the digestive system is affected as well. So that helps, helps digest food. Uh, but also nebulizers to help clear the airways and then you had to do this physiotherapy and as you were gradually getting worse and your your lung function was getting worse the infections were increasing so I found the lung infections were they were they were getting harder to clear so and of course <laughs> I I wasn't somebody to go into hospital straight away when I'd start feeling sick but every time I got a cold it, it developed into a nasty lung infection uh, but I was always delaying the inevitable until I realised I'd nowhere else to go and go in. Um, but but you were looking at longer admissions as the infections got more complicated, and you know your your ability to resist the infection and to fight it was was wilting because your lung function was declining. So mm. so so it's progressive in that sense that the the lungs are getting scarred. Your lung function is is getting less, and you know, it's just, it's like you're kind of having to to just keep running to stand still. Yeah. And it's a vicious circle. There's there's, there's no way around that. You, you're just battling the odds. You were on a waiting list or you had to be on a waiting mm. list. Was that in Ireland? Well, I was initially assessed. So it was around 2008. Um, as I said, it came quite quickly. I had kind of had six years of in and out of hospital and things getting worse. And then it was around it was around the end of 2008, it was first mentioned to me and about being assessed. And people, people don't often realise that, you know, you just don't click your fingers and get the transplant. It is a very long process. You have to be assessed. And, you know, a lot of, there are a lot of people who unfortunately don't get the opportunity to go on the list because... There's no match. Well, no, it's initially to go on the list, you, you have to be, you're, at the time, you're very sick, but you have, to be, you have to be sick enough to need the transplant. But you have to kind of be robust enough in another sense that they will think, that they think you'll get through it. So what I mean by that is, you know, your other organs in your body, like I, I had to go through a whole um, platter of tests. So I had liver function tests, I had cardiac um, I had um, kidney function, all of that. So if those other systems are, are damaged in the body, you you might not get on the list and your weight has to be good enough too. And 
a lot of people over the years have been very sick with a lost weight and they already had that inbuilt deficiency, uh, you know, that difficulty of putting on weight. So they they won't recommend you go on the list unless you, you, you've been assessed and you've kind of got through all those hoops. Um, so it's not an automatic thing that people just get to go on the list and that takes time. And that's the big challenge that you don't know how much time you have live, left when you're at that st- end, end stage of CF where you're really struggling, struggling to breed. You're on oxygen, perhaps, which I was for two years before my transplant. So, you, you, you know, it's you can't predict the future. Nobody knows what's going to happen. And it's time is the big enemy because you might not live long enough to get the transplant. But giving yourself the best chance is is is, is um the best definitely way. the way to go yeah so so after being assessed it took a bit of time but i was initially placed on the english list and the reason for that is the uh, we only started doing uh, double lung transplants or single lung transplants in ireland around 2007 mm. in the matter and like they were only getting going at the time they were only starting and Anyone who I'd ever come across who needed a, a transplant with CF had it in Newcastle. So I felt at that time my best chance of getting the transplant was in Newcastle, not Dublin. I, I kind of felt, well, if I go on the Dublin list, they've hardly done anything yet here. And I don't, I don't kind of want to be a pawn in that game. And, you know, you were looking at Newcastle. They'd been doing it for 15 years at that stage. They had... Um, the best transplant team. And there were so many successful Irish transplants done over there. So it made sense at the time to go on the Newcastle list, uh, which I which I did eventually. I was placed on the list on the 1st of June 2010. When it got to the stage your lung function was deteriorating at a stage, at a, at a, to a level that it was inev- inevitable that you needed a transplant, that was around 2012, 2013, was it? No, it was before that. It was around um, 2008. Okay, that, mm. that it was inevitable. Yeah, but I had to be assessed right. initially yeah. before going on the list. And then I was assessed the following year. But it, it, it there was a delay at the time. I'm not sure what the delay was with, with going on the English list. Um, they... They had to do all the tests and you see the, the English team used to come over to Dublin to see to see the Irish patients. So you weren't in regular contact with them. They would come over every few months. So it kind of was a drawn out process and you had to get all your tests done and they had to be fully happy. So it took about it took about fourteen months from the point of assessment. Of assessment to actually get on the list. Yeah. And your your lung function it decreases every year then, as as you were saying, from 2008, it was slowly yeah. decreasing. Mm. What was it at just at the, the time of your transplant? Was it, what was the percentage? It, it was rock bottom. Just the last time it was tested, um, it was 12%. And at that stage, I was oxygen, fully oxygen dependent. 24-7, was it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And they, um, they do this lung function test, which is, it's a big, barometer in cystic fibrosis for them to to gauge where your lungs are at but generally speaking once your lung function goes under 30 percent they look at you as potentially needing a transplant mm. 
and and then they will you know advise you accordingly and and, and get you assessed so um when it was first suggested to me around 2008 i think my lung function was about 26% and then it just kept going down until the last time and that, and that was that was actually about a year before my transplant it was 12% so then they said we're not going to test it anymore because no point <laughs> it can't go any much lower uh, and yeah. so on a day to day basis then you weren't able to do anything no n- not even maybe going up for a walk it was it was it that bad that i was very limited yeah, yeah in the last really since from go, you know from the point of going on the list quality of life was very poor and and that's what it's all about at the end of the day is quality of life, uh, which which really determined my decision to go on the list. Um, I I couldn't work. I mean, I wasn't able to work. I I was oxygen dependent. I when I wasn't at home, I was in hospital, and I remember a cousin of mine saying to me, um, "You know how how do you?" cope when you're at home do you get bored and this was when I was on the list and I kind of didn't know how to answer him only to say well I'm have to look after myself and I keep myself busy but it was only actually a few years later then after 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 the fact that I, I knew the answer which was I didn't have the energy to be bored because when you're so sick and you're struggling to get your breath and and just to do the basic day-to-day stuff you don't you don't have the energy to 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 be bored, um, so it was really just pottering around the house, get out maybe for a short walk. But I'll be honest, I mean, when you when you're on oxygen, you don't want you don't want people to see you, and I think that was the most difficult thing. Looking back on it now, you know, you could cystic fibrosis is a very deceptive illness. You know, you you can meet someone with 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 CF in the morning, and you won't know they have it because they might look absolutely fine. Uh, as, as a friend of mine with CF always said, well, they can't see your lungs, can they? Sure, yeah. You know, so you might think there's nothing wrong with them. So it's quite an, in, an invisible illness in that way. Uh, but once you get to the point where you're having to wear oxygen, the game is up. You know, you can't pretend to yourself anymore, well, I'm not too bad or I'm still living a normal life because try going out with yeah, oxygen. You're, you're on the clock. Everyone's looking at you and, you know, you kind of know it yourself. And uh, I remember being at a cousin's wedding in Dublin and at the time I was on the list and I had got, just gone on the oxygen and I had to wear the oxygen to go to the wedding. And it was the afters of the wedding. I wasn't well enough to go for the full day. And I didn't want to wear it, but I knew I had no choice. And it was like he was a great friend of mine and had come into me in hospital as, as well as being my cousin. So in the end, I, I, I went out and wore the oxygen. I remember being up at the bar getting a drink and there was a group of girls. I was like, well, I've, I've no business talking to them. You know, you're, you're just so limited with it. And one of them came over to me and she was like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> and I just went back to the hospital that night. I was like, God, yeah. we're, you know, what sort of a life is this? You know, so going back to what you said earlier about, you know, what did I do to deserve this? That that was there all along over those, those years, you know, because I my friends were were moving along with their lives. You know, they were developing their careers. They were traveling the world. You know, they were meeting partners, getting married, some of them having families. And there was I, like, battling this yeah. 
this illness that, yeah. for what? Like, what, what, what did I do to deserve this? Yeah. You know, but get, getting sorry for yourself, uh, it won't bring you anywhere. And I, I, I suppose I was lucky enough, I was able to get by that and, and, and not get trapped in it because, you know, it's just wasted energy. At the end of the day, we can't control our lives. We, and I think COVID you know, woke people up to that reality that we don't control everything and living with cystic fibrosis, you you don't have control. You you, you know, you, you can only control your attitude and and do what you can to help yourself. Um it's it's really like being trapped trapped in a a sick person's body. You you're trapped and there's nothing you can do about that. So you have to live with that and try to do what you can to help yourself. So Gordon, my next question will be in relation to the years or even the year leading up to before you got the transplant, when you actually realised that if I don't get this transplant or if it doesn't come soon enough, there's a pretty good chance I'm going to die. That's uh, that's just an inevitability with, mm. the, with, your, with the illness. How did that... How to contemplate in your death or mortality on a daily basis affect you mentally? It obviously had to take a a real, you know, a lot out of you on a day to day basis. Thinking these thoughts that are a certainty if you didn't get this transplant. Yeah, it, it was definitely there, Carlo. I, I mean, uh, everyone in that situation naturally thinks about that. I I tried not to think that much about it. Um. I mean, as I said earlier, I I, I couldn't control the outcome. So, um, control. I mean, I used to. I remember being in in the room in the, in Vincent's hospital. At that stage, we had proper facilities for people with CF. We we had single single ensuite rooms, which which weren't there for years. I remember my room looked out onto the golf course in Elm Park in Dublin, and I used to look out there and you know, look out at people playing golf. I used to think, God, I'd love to be able to do that. You know, that that's that's where I was. That mm. that was the situation. And you know, I I I kind of realize I did realize that that might not happen. Yeah, it, it got it got me down. Like I mean, you're stuck in hospital. We were quite isolated in hospital too because we were all in our own rooms. And at that time, the 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 rule which still applies is that we couldn't mix with each other. Now, I, I was too sick to be mixing with too many anyway, but people with CF, for reasons of cross-infection, it was better that we not, you know, mix, and, mix. And, and be too close to each other physically. Something like the whole COVID thinking, that that type of thinking. Uh, so, so you were really there in a very grim situation. And I used to think, God, if I was in prison, it would be better than this because... The food would be nicer <laughs> and I wouldn't be sick and I wouldn't be on oxygen. But um, I, I tried not to. I mean, I, I tried not to go there yeah. because it, 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 it doesn't, it's not going to help the situation. No. And, and, and I, I mean, I did think about it and I, I had got to know a lot of people over the years who died. And, and that was difficult seeing other people. So you, you would have become friends with people, oh, patients I did, yeah. over the years. Yeah, well, in the in the earlier years when we went in, there were no facilities. So there were no single ensuite rooms. So 
you know, even though that was the standard of care for in other countries, and and here we were in Ireland with the highest rate of of CF, and at the time the Celtic Tiger was was in full flow. You had hotels going up everywhere and loads of things happening, but but nothing being done like that in the health system for people with CF. Um, and we then had to campaign and go on the Joe Duffy show to to you know to make all that happen, which it did did eventually. But um, in those early years, the one big positive of it, looking back, was that we, you know, we were free to to mix with each other and socialise. And I did make a lot of friends with CF, who I'm still in contact with, and many of them too, unfortunately, passed away. And um, there was one friend of mine. I'll just recall this this uh, story, who I got very friendly with um, in hospital. Like these were kind of unusual friendships because you were. Yeah. <laughs> you were hanging out in hospital together like yeah. and you know that's the thing people with CF were all young we're all in our 20s 30s you wouldn't meet someone in, with CF in their 60s or 70s right. uh, it, it just didn't happen and uh, we'd have pizza at night in the hospital out at the front and all that and there was um, a girl I got very friendly with her name was Marie and at that time we were you know we were both getting sicker and, and we both realised it and we used to talk about transplant and, um, you know, I luckily I, I was always wanting to, to get the transplant if I got the opportunity because, you know, I knew what it was like to live a normal life. And, and that, you know, upbringing and, you know, the luck I had in not being sick as a child and as a teenager stood to me then because I wanted to get back to that. But I remember chatting to Marie about it and she didn't, you know, she didn't and, and she wasn't the only one in this situation. There were a lot of people who, who felt it wasn't the decision for them and she used to say to me you know well it's somebody else's lungs isn't it and I'd say to her well yeah but if it's going to help you have a normal life and have a better quality of life why not go for it you know and she just wasn't that comfortable with the idea now she had been very sick since she was young so her experience of CF had been you know constant in and out of hospital since she was a young child but anyway, long story short, she then got pregnant a year later and um, she'd been going out with a guy for about 12 or 14 years. So it was a real surprise to her um, that um, that she was pregnant. And I mean, I still will never, never get over her having having that child because we were both at that similar stage where her lung function was down in its early 20s. But they looked after her really well and in the hospital and she had a baby boy but but that pregnancy and birth took so much out of her that her health went downhill very quickly after having the child but I remember we were in contact all the time like we used to talk on phone and and, and text each other and she rang me one night and she said I have great news you'll be surprised and I said what's this what's the news she said I've decided to go on the transplant list and I, I couldn't believe it, like, because she had been so against it for so long. And I said, "Well, why? What changed your mind?" And it was quite poignant. Like her, her little boy Connor, she just said, "Well, I want to be able to keep up with Connor in the park." You know, he was at that stage. He was about one and a half, or he's, you know, he was walking. And you know, she then had to be assessed, like I did. And she was at that stage where she was in hospital all the time. I was kind of between in and out between home and hospital and um, 
she was just getting worse and worse and, and she just ran out of time then. She, she, she got assessed and was about to be placed on the list when she just, you know, just went, yeah. got worse and, yeah. and died. And like she was only 28 at the time. That's about, that's about, um, it's about 12 years ago now. Mm. Yeah. And left behind a, a husband and a baby boy. So like that, that, that's the reality of it. And, um, you know, I often think of her because, you know, I often think of that child and how she didn't get the opportunity that I got and others got. And, you know, it's very unfair, really, but it's a lottery. You know, pe- people often don't realise that transplant is a lottery. You know, people used to say to me, when when, you, when will you get your transplant? <laughs> I'd say, well, you've as good an idea as I do because because I don't know. I mean, you have to have the right match. Blood you know, type antibodies, it has I to presume. Be similar blood, same blood type. Uh, antibodies have to be right. Um, if you have too many antibodies, it can be an issue. And and that was a problem for me with Newcastle. They they said I had too many antibodies and, and I wasn't getting called over then too much uh, for a transplant. So um, there are a lot of things that have to be right. And you need to keep yourself going. You, you know, you need to be just still you know able to get through that so it's it's there's a lot of things in the air with it really and unfortunately for Marie it just that decision she made you know to change her mind was too late she wanted it but but there wasn't enough time she had to be assessed and 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 she didn't even get and on the list said, in the you end had 14 months of an assessment period I had and, and she didn't have that time she obviously. didn't have that time and and then even when I got on the list I was over three years on the list. Yeah. And I know of cases of other people who were five, six years on the list. Some were a few months. So every every case is different, really. So let's get to the actual, when your time came for mm. a transplant. How did that come about? Where was it? In, you, you, were on the, you were on the waiting list in Newcastle. Yeah, so I was on the, went on the Newcastle list on the 1st of June 2010. And then... I got a call over there. Um, it was the following year we got a call over, got a call to go over. And uh, at the time, the way it worked was Newcastle would fly patients in a small little aircraft. So down we went to Sligo Airport. Uh, there was my mum, my sister and I, and we were flown over to Newcastle and uh, straight to the hospital. And uh, the the transplant coordinator was in and out telling us what was happening and um, they did bloods and so on and like I thought is it going ahead now I wasn't sure and then she came back into the room later to say well unfortunately the match isn't fully right and we have somebody else who's sicker than you so it won't be going ahead Mm. for you tonight and uh, it was disappointing, but for me personally at that time, I kind of felt relieved because, you know, uh, as so- someone said to me, I kind of couldn't verbalise it myself until somebody said to me, well, did you feel that you weren't sick enough for it? Because I was on the transplant list, so <laughs> by any measure I was sick enough. But I think it was that I felt I had more in the tank you know, I wasn't on oxygen at that stage and 
you know, it was a case of feeling I don't want to get it too soon. Now, that's a hard one to explain, you know, if you're not in the situation, but I kind of felt I can keep going here for another while. So I wasn't really distraught when it didn't go ahead because, as I said earlier, you're, you're facing into a massive operation where, you know, your your chest is opened up and so on and, and your lungs are taken out and two new lungs put in. So, I mean, it's not something you go into lightly. So, so I was kind of relieved that it wasn't going ahead at that point. But then you're weighing that against the you know, against the the other scenario of, well, what if I get worse and I mightn't get another call? So it's it's just, it's like quicksand. You don't yeah. you don't know where you are. You're just... Rock in a hard place kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, totally, yeah. Uh, but back we came, back home again and struggled on for another while. And as time went on, I noticed Newcastle, they, they weren't calling me again. And there was this issue about my antibodies. So... The way that works is if you have too many antibodies, it's it's not a good thing with transplants. So they kept saying, well, you have too many antibodies, so that makes it harder to get an exact match. And then they proposed that I move to Newcastle. So, like, that was massive. I mean, moving to Newcastle, to, you know, it, it just, it was, <laughs> you know, it wasn't, I, I didn't really want to do that. And, I mean, if they were saying to me, well, move to Newcastle and we guarantee you, you get a transplant in two months, then maybe. But you could be over there forever and not get it. And then, like, I, the hospital was like a second home. I knew all the nurses. You know, I had friends who were in there as well. And, you know, I knew I kind of had the run of the place in a way. And, and I was like, well, you know, if I, I really thought to myself, well, you know, I, if I'm going to get worse and... This is coming back to what you asked me earlier about, you know, thinking about dying and mortality. Mm. And I certainly did think to myself, well, if I'm going to get worse here and I'm going to find myself, you know, on my last legs and at the point where I'm going to die, I want to do that here in Dublin, in a hospital where I know everyone, I'm comfortable and I've all my family and friends because... Mm. You go over to Newcastle, sure, my friends weren't going to be in, my relatives, you know, my immediate family would be there, obviously, but it, it just wasn't, it wasn't... Um, didn't sit right with it you. It didn't sit, didn't sit with me at all. Um, but there was the hope that it would still happen and, you know, I continued on, but as, as we kind of got into 2012, I remember thinking, God, I haven't had another call here there's nothing happening and at that time the Matter Hospital were really starting to take off now four years previously they were only getting going but now they were doing a significant number of double lung transplants like they they were doing at the time around 16 to 20 I think and um, I kind of thought yeah that that's an, a real option now things are changing so I I asked for a meeting with Professor Jim Egan, who was the the transplant physician for the matter, and uh, he came over to me and um, I said to him, "I, you know, I want to get assessed now for the. I'm interested in going on to the Irish list." And he said, "Well, you'll have to get assessed first. (laughs) It's like, 
assessed again. Here we go. Here we go again. So I then had to be assessed for the Irish list. The fact that I had been assessed previously uh, for Newcastle and in fact I had two assessments because I was assessed initially in the matter before I went over to Newcastle to be assessed because the matter in Newcastle had that connection. And um, so here we were in 2012 having now to be assessed again at a third time with a view to going on the Irish list. So so we went ahead with that and that was a much tougher process, Carlo, than four years previously because I was a lot sicker. And, you know, the sicker you get, the more these tests take out of you. Um, I remember having to go for a liver biopsy and I was just whacked out like I had to be wheeled down from the room down, down for this. I was like, God, will I, ever, will I ever get these tests finished? And that carried right through. I mean, I had said it to Professor Egan the previous September and it, it wasn't, we were well into 2013 and the tests were still going on. And I remember specifically St. Patrick's weekend 2013 uh, kind of taking a turn where I just, I actually felt I was getting worse and that the end was nigh. Um, I was I was so sick I couldn't even get myself out of the bed for, for several days and tests I was still due to have were cancelled. But somehow I, I, I rallied round and was able then to, to get to the end of that process. But but then I was waiting for the consult for the um surgeon. The matter had appointed a new surgeon, Karen Redmond. She she had a lot of experience in the UK and as soon as she came over to the matter everything kind of took off but I was waiting for her to come and see me she was like the final piece in the jigsaw um, so she arrived over to see me in July 2013 and she came in and like I was absolutely bet I was just there on the oxygen and I was also not just on oxygen I was on a device called a BiPAP which it's kind of like, if you can imagine it, like a scuba Ventilate. diving mask. No? Yeah, it's a ventilator. It's called a non-invasive ventilator. So it's it's pushing air in through your lungs. So my own long lungs at that stage were, were gone. So that BiPAP ventilator, which I had been on full time since February, from February 2013, right, right through, I got, through I got my transplant, that was kind of my bridge to transplant because without that technology I, I wouldn't have lasted uh, now I had been on that at night for a couple of years uh, but but then once I was on that full time during the day it was serious like it was really grim then and I mean I had heard of stories o- over the years when I was in another hospital that once people went on BiPAP they might only last days but anyway Karen Redmond came over and I remember she came into the room sat down to talk to me like I was trying to talk through this mask and oxygen coming in as well and I just remember saying to her I have to get this transplant in the next couple of months and she just looked at me (laughs) and her face kind of dropped and she says Gordon she says you have to get this in the next few weeks and and then it kind of hit me I I think it was then that it really hit me because up to then I kind of just tried to keep going without I, I knew I was I knew I was getting near the end, but I tried to avoid thinking about it um, because some of the nurses who looked after me had said to me, 
you know, they had seen it with other patients that once they mentally gave in, that the end followed very quickly after that. So, so I knew that I had to mentally stay strong, no matter how dire <laughs> the situation was, which it was by then. Uh, but but what Karen Redmond said said like really put it in in focus, and then she then got me onto the transplant list. She had to had to okay it as as kind of the final part of the process, and I was put on the the Irish list the next morning, Carlo. Mm. And how soon after you were on that Irish waiting list did you get news that you have a match? A week. A week. One week. Yeah, That's and that was after three years and two months almost of being on the Newcastle list. Yeah, you were deemed the match for a suitable transplant. Mm. You have how how so it was a week after you you were on the list. You got the the match, and then when did you actually get the transplant? It was about. Eight days after another week. Uh, no, no, it was it was all within the week. Um, I was put on the the actual list on the Friday morning, and then I was told about five days later that there was a match, and that my transplant was going ahead. Now, usually the transplant would go ahead quite quickly once you're told, and a day later would be th- would be the would be the longest delayed but they just said to me well we have a match and we're hoping to go ahead with it but it won't be for a few days because the person who had passed away there was um, I was told there were relatives travelling back from around the world and there was some delay there you're not told much and at Mm -hmm. that stage uh, you're just so glad to hear that that you don't ask and um, so there was a, a few days of of, de- of delay then until it went ahead on the Sunday. So that would have been about it was about eight about seven or eight days after That's being quick, told. Isn't it? Unbelievably quick. I mean, it doesn't you, really. You don't have much time then to process everything that's going on, and you have very little time to process it. And and what made it even more um, crazy at the time was that Newcastle called up. The morning, I mean, I remember that night, Karen Redmond came over to see me, the, the surgeon, Karen Redmond. She came over to see me that Friday. And I was left then having to make that decision that evening about switching on to the Irish list. Because I was still on the Newcastle list and you could not be on two transplant lists. You could only be on one. And Newcastle were making reassuring noises and saying to me you know you're at top of our priority list we want to we want to uh, go ahead with the transplant and and do it and then what happened on the Friday morning was bizarre because I had made the decision that night before and I didn't sleep a wink to go on the Irish list I thought you know I've given it everything with Newcastle I knew at that stage I was very close to the end like I was just literally hanging on the edge of a cliff. Yeah, I was even past that because I was just in the bed most of the time. But um, 
I'd made that decision that night and that was the hardest, that was even a tougher decision than going on the list in the beginning because going on a transplant list is a big decision when every part of you doesn't want to have to make that decision. You know, you, you don't have many choices. You either go on the list and hope you'll get it or you don't go on the list and you play out your time. And, and I've seen that happen with a lot of people who didn't go on the list and, and many of them aren't around now. And even after transplant, there's no guarantees. There can be complications. So it's a huge decision. But but that night then deciding to switch onto the Irish list was really a big one. And I made that decision. And then the next morning, a nurse burst in the door around eight o'clock in the morning. And she says, Gordon, she says, Newcastle are on the line. There's a match. So I was like... I was, I had made the decision mentally to switch onto the Irish list, but technically I was still on the Newcastle list because it hadn't been signed off in the matter that I was officially on their list. So when the call came through from Newcastle the following morning, that Friday morning, I, I was, sorry, the Saturday morning, I, I was still on the Newcastle list. And then I was like, well, what do I do now? And, uh, nobody seemed to know because they were like, which list are you on? Are you on the Irish list? Or are you on the Newcastle list? So then they rang the matter and the matter said, oh no, he's on our list now. But then I had, well, at that stage I wasn't really well enough to talk to anyone, but the the Newcastle coordinator got quite surprised because they didn't realise what was happening, you know, fully that I that it was going on the Irish list. But then she called back, Carlo, to say that there was an issue with the with the um, with the match in Newcastle that um, it wouldn't be able to go ahead, so they wouldn't fly me over. So, but I kind of had already made my decision, and I thought, look, well, it, luckily I wasn't placed in the position of having to fly over that day, having made my mind to change onto the Irish list. So we went ahead with the Irish list and. It was only about five days after that I was told there was a match for me and the operation went ahead on the Sunday. So the operation itself, is it's, a, I presume, a long operation. Oh, it is. Yeah, it is. Um, ten plus hours, is it? Or, it is. Know? It's it's at least ten, yeah. yeah. It's about, about that. And um, you're knocked out cold. Like, you yeah, just, you don't remember much of it, thankfully. And... So, so you you came through obviously the operation. Mm. What then was it like post transplant to take those first deep breaths of air with a new set of lungs? I must it must have been a, a a crazy feeling. Just well, it 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 is a crazy feeling for people, but in my situation, I wasn't immediately able to do that. Because I had massive complications oh, really? okay. during the surgery. So I was unlucky. I bled internally during the transplant. Now, my family were told the actual new lung, they, they had got the, my old lungs out okay and the new lungs were in. But then this bleeding happened. So they didn't know what caused it. They didn't know why it happened and they didn't know how to solve it. So I was in a situation then where I was bleeding uncontrollably and all my family and friends were called in on the on the Monday into the hospital. Uh, they were all in the room surrounding me. Usually they'd have a, like only a couple of people in and very strict protocols. 
And there didn't seem to be any hope. And because even though the transplant part of it had been successful, the bleeding, the bleeding had developed and, and none of the medical experts, the surgeons involved, knew what caused it. It was unusual. Most people don't have that. They they just, you know, they wake up from the transplant and they are able to take in those breaths immediately. So I didn't have that for for a while. So um, I was bleeding anyway and um, they said, what they said was we, we don't know how to stop it and they were base. My family were basically told we'll have to switch off everything um, in a few hours. If it so, doesn't stop bleeding, if you didn't. Yeah, stop well, they had they had got like my blood type from several different hospitals in Dublin, and um, they were kind of running out of blood for my blood type. And you know, it often makes me think the importance of donating blood. It's something people don't even think about a, a, a lot of the time. But I'm so grateful for that when I look back uh, that, that people did uh, donate blood because I got a lot of blood. I was told I got something crazy like five times my body weight because they were just, they were putting in all this blood apparently and it was just bleeding out and nothing was working. Um, but then um, not too long after the, the doctor said that about switching everything off and like they were even talking about my funeral my own family like my sister's birthday was the following Thursday and she was distraught that the funeral was going to be be on her birthday and and they were just they were all like preparing for a funeral but then miraculously and it was nothing short of a miracle by all accounts I started to stop bleeding now also just to say this to you um, a few people from around Coote Hall contacted um, a guy who I knew growing up in Coot Hall, his name is John Dowd. He they used to um, run the post office in Coot Hall, and I didn't even realise this growing up in Coot Hall that John had a cure to stop bleeding. So yeah. he was contacted, and he did his thing, and it wasn't too long after that I'm told that the bleeding started to stop. And like the doctors and, and, and experts in the matter, they, had, they didn't know why it stopped. They didn't know why it started and they still don't know why it stopped. But the most important thing is that it, it did. Stopped. It stopped. <laughs> and then once it stopped, they, they were all, you know, excited, all the nurses and everything. And they, there was a, a possibility I might, I, might, I might actually survive. <laughs> and that's what happened then. And I've, told I was brought back down again to surgery on the Wednesday and I had to be closed up because I wasn't closed up after the the transplant itself which doesn't happen normally with, with transplants so um, I was brought down and closed up and um, I had my gallbladder removed as well and a couple of other things so uh, that was on the Wednesday and then on the Thursday, which was four days after my operation, uh, I just started flickering my eyes open and my mum and sister were there and the excitement was unbelievable in the room. But like, this is why when you asked earlier about 
taking in those breaths and I have friends who had that experience straight away but that wasn't how it went for me I didn't get to experience that immediately but I couldn't even lift I couldn't even lift a finger uh, when I woke up you know as, as one of the doctors looked after me said it's like you've been hit by a bomb you know I was just I was on dialysis I was in ICU for four weeks after my operation and then moved to high dependency for another five weeks like I remember about a year after my own transplant going in to visit a friend of mine with CF who had a transplant and he was sitting up in ICU the day after sitting up there chatting away and was moved out of ICU then two days after his transplant but I I really had to learn to walk again like I, I was just wiped out I was on dialysis for I don't know how long and um just um just it was t- really a really tough recovery it was it was really grim like I I remember I had like a ventilator in my mouth initially and I was like it was kind of, it was really painful I remember just trying to pull it out and a nurse com- kept coming over to me I had a nurse in the room with me in ICU and she said no 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 you can't do that and I was like, God, you wouldn't do you wouldn't do this to a dog, right? That's that's how tough it was in the reco- in that early phase of recovery. But somehow I I battled through that. I don't know how. I just hung in there and got through it. And gradually, they got me up, got me moving again. And like I had a lot of muscle wastage from years of being sick and and and, and being so unwell. Like I think looking back on it, Carlo, I was probably I was probably too sick going into the operation you know we talked earlier about that initial call uh, with Newcastle where I came home relieved that it hadn't gone ahead but by the time I did get the transplant eventually I was fully relieved as, as well as terrified going into the operation but I knew going into the operation you know in, in, in July 2013 when I finally had it that there was nowhere else to go I had nowhere else to turn there was literally no other option on earth only in for that operation come what may and um, with the complications that developed afterwards you know I was very lucky I was you know lucky on the double to to be here and so afterwards adjusting to life post transplant what obviously adjustments had you to make you could do a lot more things obviously that you couldn't done prior oh Totally. I mean, the the difference. I mean, once I recovered from from the, that um, initial phase, um, having had the complications, then I, 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 you know, I gradually got strong, stronger, and got back on my feet. And it's just a whole new world. I mean, being able to breathe again, like you asked me about earlier. I mean, that 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 came then, and and just not to have to wear the oxygen. That was everything to me at the time. You know, when you'd had that experience for. Yeah. Two years, yeah. you know, every day, you know, it was not it was the feeling of normality. You know, I can be normal again because one of the things about living with a serious illness like CF is that it takes normality from you and your ability to, to lead a normal life is, is gradually it's chipped away at to the point then where where you don't have it. So to get that back and and that ability to to breathe fully and to get out and just like get out on a bicycle and go for a cycle or a walk I mean that that wasn't possible I couldn't even get up the stairs for nigh on a year before my transplant and even before that I was struggling up and down 
puffed out. And I can remember working in Dublin even before I went on the list. And I'd go up a stairs and I'd have to stop just totally breathless. Uh, so to now be able to bound up a stairs. I remember I had a night um, in Dublin for all the nurses who looked after me in Vincent's. That was about a year after my transplant and, and, and good friends of mine and family and relatives. And I remember it was the, the place I had it. It was um, it was three flights of steps up <laughs> and uh, I was able to just fly up those steps without feeling it. And, and the nurses were all remarking on it. They were saying some of them were breathless getting to the top. <laughs> but that was a great thing. And, and just the simple things, to be able to do the simple things. It's, But it was an adjustment because when you've been, you know, living like that for several years where you're just existing, you know, you then have to transition to living because you can now live and, and do things again, like being able to fly away. Right. I mean, I couldn't I couldn't leave the country for seven years, you know, between 2007 and 2014. I remember being in Spain in 2007 and I was supposed to be wearing my oxygen at the time, go, going around walking and I didn't want to at that time. I remember going up the stairs or go, sorry, going up hills. I couldn't even get up hills and I ended up we had to come back early. And I went straight from the airport to the hospital and was quite unwell at the time. So, you know, then after transplant to be able to turn up at an airport, just just to be able to do that, turn up at an airport and fly anywhere. I mean, that's that's something I don't take for granted now because I didn't have that experience for many years before my transplant. Um, so um, and do, I, do you think your do you think CF would have defined you in terms in your early years like were you Gordon with cystic fibrosis or how how, what would your thoughts on that be now do you think you were defined by CF I don't think so in the early days I kind of think uh, I was Gordon who (laughs) didn't want to admit he had cystic fibrosis you know because you just want to be normal and have a normal life and I suppose you know I didn't allow myself for that. Maybe I was hard on myself because going to school, you know, playing sports, I wasn't the best on that, on that front. But, you know, the the cystic fibrosis was always there, even though I didn't get really sick with it until I was 21 or two. So it was there and I was compromised physically with that, Mm. you know, even, even though everything looked fine on the outside and normal. So, um, but I didn't let it define me. But but then when you get to the point where you're not able to, to lead a normal life, you're not working, at that stage, it does define you, even though you don't like it, because, you know, you're stripped stripped of your of your ability to to live normally. And I mean, I always tried not to, li- to let it define me, uh, but it's, it's definitely part part of the scene at that stage. And for for people like yourself that come out the other side of the transplant and that have dealt with cystic fibrosis all their life, would there be a sense of uh, being disenfranchised to the illness? Like they don't belong, like for so long they've been a a CFer, if you like, Mm. and now you're no longer in that category. Mm. Do some people have a, I don't probably not the best way of explaining it, but would they have a longing that they miss those days, even though they wouldn't, like yourself, you wouldn't miss those days, obviously. But is there a sense of 
I do have, you know, some some parts of it that I miss. Yeah, that's a really good question, Carlo. Um, it's it's very individual, you know, where you have people who were living living with cystic fibrosis since they were very young, sick with it. That's all they knew. Yeah, that's what I was kind of... And, and, and that that then, like with my friend Marie, that, that made it difficult for people like that to make that decision to go on the transplant waiting list. Um, but then you also have people like Marie who, 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 who were sick since they were young who do get go on the list and get the transplant, but but they can revert to being the patient because th- that's a very hard thing to shift. If you've been the sick person, you know, since you were a child. All your life, yeah. And then you get the transplant and you don't need to live that life anymore because you have this new freedom, you can breed properly. You know, you don't have to spend all this time every day doing physiotherapy to clear out mucus and phlegm because you don't have it anymore after transplant. You have these new healthy lungs. But some people psychologically revert to, to type, you know, to, to use yeah. the expression, because that's all they knew. And and that's where the psychological part of, of transplant comes into play. You know, it, it is a major adjustment psychologically you know, to to fully come to terms with the fact that, you know, that you now have somebody else's lungs inside you. And um, it can be a huge challenge because when you've lived with cystic fibrosis and have been sick with it over many years, you know your own lungs mm. and you get to know them very well. So you kind of know what works, you know, in terms of, how to look after yourself, um, you know, with medication, for instance, like they throw everything at people with CF in terms of antibiotics and that. And you kind of learn over the years, well, that's not working for me. So, you know, I might not talk, take that, even though you're, you're taking everything else. But after transplant, none of that applies because you're simply, you can't afford to take any risk. You, yeah. you're, you're trying to get to grips with with these new lungs and it feels different and physically it feels different and you know everything that that you're told to take you you take it rigidly uh, but but then you have the psychological transition that well I'm free now to do things I, I can go I can get a job I can travel again and um, I'm lucky in the sense that that I did have that experience growing up to fall back on. So it did stand to me in the long run, you know, even though when I did get sick initially in my early 20s, you know, the fact that I kind of felt very new to it and, you know, didn't know a huge amount about it. Now, my parents explained it to me and all that, but it was kind of, um, it was very much a normal environment growing up. They didn't dwell on it and, and they didn't make a big thing of it. So I didn't feel any different to anybody else, but... Of course, yeah. I was. So, so, so that is a difficult psychological adjustment after transplant. And I have, I do have a couple of friends who, I think, did fall back into that kind of sick person thing after transplant, and you know, developed complications and aren't around now. But, 
But the majority I know who've had a transplant have made the adjustment and embraced it and are doing absolutely fabulously and, and leading full lives. Brilliant. Yeah. yeah. Uh, just before we wrap up, I just want to touch on the organ donation because mm. in Ireland we don't have an opt out system yet. We're trying to l- legislate for it, but we it's are. not there yet. Yeah, no, there was a bill brought in about, must be about three years ago now, into the Dáil and um, they haven't legislated yet to bring in the opt out system. So we still have the voluntary opt-in system where you have to sign up to be an organ donor and you can do that by ticking your driving licence or uh, signing up with the Irish Kidney Association and there's an an app as well or just having the conversation with your closest relatives and and that's something I'd encourage everybody to do Uh, you know just to to talk about it and and it's a tricky one Carlo because (laughs) nobody wants to talk about debt or about their mortality, you know, and in this country we prefer not to think about it. I suppose it's the same all over the world. But it's really important that people do express their wishes uh, if they'd like to to be an organ donor, potentially in the worst case scenario. Uh, But what would really transform the situation in Ireland, I think, would be the the opt-out system. So under that everyone would be considered an organ donor unless they have expressly um, stated that they do not want to be an organ donor. So at the moment, we kind of have the opposite of that, where it's opt-in. And it is incredible how many people never think about it. Like, I remember being on on the train up to Dublin not too long after my own transplant, and I was chatting to a couple of lads here locally from Boyle that, that I knew to see, and they were asking me about the transplant. They'd heard about it. And, and then I just said to them, hey, do you, you know, have you signed up yourselves to, to be an organ donor? And they said, no. And I said, oh, how, how come would you consider it? And they said, well, never really thought about it. Or how would you go about it? So there, there isn't really enough awareness. And I think it's, it's vital that, that people uh, do consider it. And I think throughout the COVID pandemic too, maybe it, it kind of got pushed more more in, into the background. Like I know the year before the pandemic, 2019, we had 274 uh, organ transplants in Ireland. And last year, 2021, there were 203. And we have over 600 people currently waiting on the list. So a lot of those people will die if, if they don't get a transplant. Yeah, the opt-out system is, I think, the only way. It definitely is. And when you look at the experiences of other countries, I know they have it in Belgium, for instance, and the the rate of organ transplantation has increased there due to the opt-out system. And it's only fair, I think, that people, you know, who are very sick and on a transplant waiting list get that opportunity. And in Belgium, it seems most people do get that opportunity and you know I'd love to see it brought in here as soon as possible but it is working its way through the the Oroctus as they say yeah. <laughs> and uh, might do a few zigzags I'm sure it might yeah but I think it's on track to come in so to round things up Gordon um, one thing I like to ask at the end of us at the end of our conversations is is there anything I haven't asked you that maybe I should have 
That That's a really great question, Carlo. Um, I think a potential question you might have asked me is what advice or encouragement I'd have for people battling cystic fibrosis or, or waiting for a transplant or, or any any serious illness. Because um, looking back on my own experience, it, it can be quite isolating when you're battling a, a severe illness. It's not something that people always want to go out and talk about. You know, you're just trying to get on with it and, and try and keep things as normal as possible. So there's a tendency to be quite private about it. And then the support may not always be accessible for you. So in that scenario, I would emphasize, you know, the importance of hope. And and luckily in the world of transplant, there is hope that you might get your transplant and, and that's what keeps you going. And in any situation, not to, you know, not to despair, not, not, not to give up, um, which is easier said than done, but... You know, we don't control we don't control a lot of things in life and the only thing we can control is how we cope with our own situation and my experience of of, of seeing others over the years was that uh, those who who kind of didn't um didn't help themselves uh struggled. So just do your best to, to help yourself by remaining positive and hanging in there because you never know when your luck will turn. That's great. Yeah. Mm. Well, listen, Gordon, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. You've given a lot of insight into the world of cystic fibrosis and transplants, specifically lung transplant. And I think a lot of people will get some inspiration from the chat. So thank you very, very much for taking the time. You're welcome, Carlo. Thank you for having me on. So that's it for this episode, folks. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed recording it. If you like the content, we'd really appreciate it if you could share it. You can follow us on Facebook by searching for Voices of Boyle, and you can also contact us on our website by visiting voicesofboyle.com. We're always looking for new guests, so if you'd like to be on the show, or if you know someone who you'd like to join us, please reach out to us via our Facebook page or website. Thanks very much, and we'll chat to you again soon. Thank you.